Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Peter Gaiman, Professor of Old Testament and Biblical Languages at Shepherd Seminary. This podcast is dedicated to discussing issues related to scripture and theology. For more information, visit petergaiman.com. Welcome back to another episode. Today we're going to do something that we've done in the past, and I feel like they've gone pretty well, and that's we're going to look at a interview, and specifically we're going to be uh, reviewing a podcast interview uh, on Unitarianism, uh, trying to combat the deity of Christ. And there's a couple reasons why I want to do this. On the one hand, I've just really seen a lot of people on social media and uh, on YouTube and things like that really kind of embracing this idea that there are good arguments against the deity of Christ. And there's also a backdrop to this. Uh, The interview that I'm going to play for you is between two individuals by the name of Sean Finnegan and Bill Schlegel. So they do a little series on a podcast uh, trying to talk about different passages that address or so-called address the deity of Christ. And of course, they're coming at it from a Unitarian perspective. Well, if you Google uh, Bill Schlegel, you will find a interesting history with him. And some of you as listeners might already know this. But he was associated with the Master's University recently, uh, about two years ago, uh, well, over just about a year and a half ago. And it was a bit of a big deal because he came out after working at Master's for, I can't remember what it was, I think it was something like 18 years, and he came out against the Trinitarian position. He used to be working for Master's University at their Ibex campus in Israel, And he worked there, lived there, stayed there, and would teach uh, geography and land of the Bible. And he came out against uh, the deity of Christ, against the Trinitarian position. And so there was a bit of a uh, confrontation, and rightfully so, in you know challenging him, uh, hoping to bring him back to the fold of an orthodox position, because we rightly treat the deity of Christ as a premier doctrine in the church. And so he rejected that position and so obviously lost his position at Masters University. And it did not take long for him to become a very stalwart part of the Unitarian camp. And so he made friends with a lot of these high-profile Unitarians who reject the Trinity and who uh, reject the deity of Christ, uh, believe Christ is a created being. And when we watch how that unfolds in social media and things like that. It's discouraging to me to see a lot of people agree with some of the arguments that people like Bill Schlegel are making against the deity of Christ. And so, you know, it's it's kind of with a heavy heart and with a bit of sadness that I want to go through this interview and show the inconsistencies and lack of cogent argumentation because I really think when you address these things, it really does become evident that this position does have some major holes and that there is some uh, huge problems when you think about just exegeting the text. And so I think it'll be helpful for us to go through it. So I'm going to be playing a lot of the interview and then making uh, comments as we stop and go along for that. So I'm pl- I'm starting uh, at about the two two minute fifteen second mark. Basically, what's happened is they've introduced this. This is part four in dealing with all the texts 
of scripture that may address the deity of Christ and and how they should otherwise be interpreted. And today, really, what we're just going to address is Philippians two five through eight, which many of us who have read that passage, you know, rejoice in it, uh, embrace it gladly as a testimony to the deity of Christ. And so we're going to see kind of how a Unitarian might present this passage or think through it from the mouth of Bill Schlegel himself. And we'll kind of talk through why this is a very uh, poor position to hold. And so let's uh, go ahead and cue it up. And starting off, they've just read Philippians 2, 5 through 8. And now uh, Sean Finnegan, who's doing the interview, is going to ask uh, Bill what he thinks about the passage. Yeah, it's a magnificent text, isn't it? It's sometimes called the Carmen Christi, the Song of Christ. And uh, some scholars have suggested that due to its form and vocabulary, that it may actually have been a quotation that Paul used in uh, making his overall point, which was that the Philippians should be like Christ, as it says in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. I don't, I don't have a horse in that race. I'm more interested here, Bill, in getting your take on the interesting part in verse 6 and 7, where it talks about being in the form of God. I'm sure you're aware the NIV translates that who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Hmm. So how do you read this and what's your thinking here? I would just encourage us all to again look at the whole context of this letter. And you might even say the whole corpus of Paul's letters. Will the Apostle Paul in two, three or four verses here in the middle of the book of Philippians is it even logical at all to think he's going to now slip in the perhaps foremost important theological understanding of who the Christ is. Is that? All right, I'm going to stop it right there for just a second, and he's going to go on for that. Uh, but this is an important uh, element to see the presuppositionally. If you, if you break down the arguments that Schlegel's using right now, and I have a bit of an inside track too, because I've uh, sat through a couple discussions with him on this issue, and I've seen him do similar things, where his presupposition is that you have to think that it's already impossible or already that it's not likely to say the least that Paul is going to do this or, or John is going to do this because John is a Jew and Paul is a Jew. So is it likely that they're going to use a element which would be so amazing and so just contrary to the thought process of so many people? Would they use this and already the it's kind of circumventing the question saying it's unlikely because nobody would think that way and it, it well here here's a case in point when when I was talking to him one time I remember asking him about John John's rehearsal of Jesus's resurrected body and Thomas goes up to Jesus and says my lord and my god in John 20 and I asked him well what did Thomas mean by that and he responded to me and said, well, he couldn't have meant my God as we think of God because he was a Jew and he only believed in one God. That would have been impossible for him to think through it in that regard, the way we do in a Trinitarian understanding. So already it's a presupposition 
which actually goes with a misunderstanding a little bit of the Old Testament, which we don't have time to get into now, but trying to force this idea of there can be no uh, unity, although multiplicity of persons in the Godhead, there can be, there can be nothing like that with a normal Trinitarian understanding. And that already is supposed to be the context with which you approach the scripture. And so it's already trying to front load things saying you can't default to the fact that, that Jesus is God because that's unfair and that wouldn't be natural. That's the, that's the first part of the argument. That's the presupposition. And that's what he means by the overall context. Even though we would say, well, of course that makes sense. There's other places where Paul talks about the deity of Christ. But then he would go back to those passages and say, no, Paul doesn't talk about the deity of Christ anywhere else. So it's you take each passage separately and you argue from the whole saying it's not possible to incorporate deity. So this can't mean deity. And then you go to each passage and make that same argument. But you can see that's that's a little bit uh, misleading and unfair. All right, let's keep going. Really reasonable. Is that what Paul is doing here? Or could there be another way to understand these verses? Because these verses, as you know, as I know, and many other people have heard, to to many people, Philippians chapter 2 is a slam dunk for the deity of Jesus. They don't see it any other way. They don't think there could be another possibility. Is that how you read it before, too? I would say yes, for sure. I understood this passage to be a setting aside of the second person of the Trinity, his divine attributes to become a human being. It is the very first passage that I went to when I began to understand that Jesus is a human Messiah, that God has exalted to his position in heaven at at God the Father's right hand. When I began to understand that, Philippians 2 is the first place I went because I started to think, okay, what about these other passages? The first one that came to mind, I had to go back and I I say, okay, what does Philippians 2 really say? And I came to understand it's not talking about this mythical scene where the deity are deciding, hey, we need to save mankind. How are we going to do this? And one member of the Trinity says, well, I'll do it. I'll go down there and I'll become man and I'll do what needs to be done. And then we'll finish this up and we'll save man. That's a mythical idea, but it's the idea that we bring to the text and it's pretty difficult to get out of that mindset. I'll I'll say why. I can give an example of why. Uh, In my own personal experience, as I began to explain some of the understandings in the scriptures as I I see them to my wife, for her, Philippians chapter 2, she said, I I must have explained this to her 10 times. And she just couldn't see it. Finally, there was another article that she wrote or she read where she saw a picture of Jesus, the human Jesus, on a cross, dying. And somehow that that made it snap for her. She began to... All right, I just have to stop there. I mean, I want to play his arguments in the entirety just because I think it's helpful and fair to allow him to have his say just to show that I'm not uh, putting words in his mouth or anything like that. But I do want to stop right there and just make a note that that really saddened me to hear that where... You know, he's explaining this view uh, against the deity of Christ to his wife, and he's, you know, doing it 10 or more times, and she just doesn't understand his view. And 
And that just, that just breaks my heart. And I do think, you know, from a, a biblical perspective, there obviously will be judgment to pay for his spiritual leadership with regard to that. Uh, and from, from a, Argument perspective, I hope I'm not misunderstanding him because you heard his argument. What I hear him saying is that she didn't understand his argument from the text, but then when she saw a picture, and I don't know if he means a literal picture or maybe just after reading the article, uh, there was an image that went into her mind. But if he, he means a literal picture, which is what I kind of took it as, and I'm not, if it's not a literal picture, then it's, it's still an interesting thought, but it's strange to me that that's ultimately what what ended up convincing her. And, uh, it's, yeah, just something to think about if, if logic and interpretation of the text isn't enough and it requires, uh, some sort of emotional well-being or argument, uh, to make that point. Obviously, that's a spurious, uh, argument from the text that can't be supported if that's the, if that's the basis. But to be fair, I know he's going to try to make his argument from the text. That's just an illustration. And so we're going to, we're going to deal with that argument. But, I just uh, wanted to uh, make a comment on that. See what this is really saying, that human Jesus on the cross. So I understand that this is a passage, and I, I began to share one time with my friend my understanding of this, and I think it was a oh an incomplete understanding. But even the little bit of different interpretation I had, my friend, he just he couldn't understand it. I was like babbling to him. So if you come at this, and this is the only perspective you've taken, yes, I know it's going to be hard to shed that understanding, but I really think there is a better way to understand that. And, and put, I would say put it a simple way, as concise as possible. I would say what we have here is Paul, in the context, he's telling them, he's telling the Philippians, on this earth, you humble yourself. We have the example of what will lead to glory. And the example of what will lead to glory is our Messiah. Now we have lots of fancy language here. The Greek is not so simple. You got words that are occurring only in this one place. But I believe that Paul is saying that now Jesus is in the form of God. Okay, you got a fancy Greek word here, morphe. Where does it occur? This is the one who is the Image of the invisible God, like Paul says in Colossians in another place. He's using a little different language, probably with a little different uh, take on it, a little different aspect of who Jesus is. But when Paul is writing this, Jesus is the resurrected, glorified Messiah sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. Now, how did he get to that position? He humbled himself. And that's what Paul is saying in this whole context. He's saying, look at this is your mind. This is this is what you have to do as well. Don't do anything from selfish conceit, but in humility, count others as better than yourselves. And he'll go on and give other examples of that exact mindset in the continuation of the chapter. Uh, he talks about Timothy, who everybody else looks after their own interests, but Timothy, he doesn't. He looks after interests of others and the interests of Jesus the Messiah. And Epaphroditus, this guy who almost died in service in the work of Christ. Okay, so there's your example. And this is what I believe what Paul is telling us here. You want glory? You want exaltation? Here's the path. Humility. And I think we can see this in the writing 
the exact same point, the exact same idea in other places in Paul's letters, but as well in James and in Peter. Many times you can see the same ideas that Paul is talking about, be it humility, suffering, etc. on this age. See the same ideas in James and Peter. Let me flip over. Just All right, He's going to go through the other passages, so I'm going to skip ahead here. But I, I want to say that at this point, there's complete agreement that obviously the main part of this entire passage is humility. And that's an important takeaway as we're going through this. But the one thing that is going to be brought up in kind of a superficial way, but he doesn't spend a lot of time on it. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to mention it here is that if the assumption is that Jesus is a created being, which is what he makes the assumption as, then verse six has a, I mean, it really has a problematic take. So there are two ways to read verse six when it says, consider Christ Jesus, verse five, um, have the same mind. Verse six, who was in the form of God and did not consider equality to, uh, with God something to be grasped. There are two ways you could take that. On the one hand, you could take it as something to be pursued or something that you already had and you did not want to retain it. So in other words, equality with regard to glory, uh, and either Jesus as a created being didn't want to pursue that. So he's, uh, backing off of that and not pursuing it, or he already had that glory, like in our understanding of John 17, where Jesus says, restore to me the glory that I had with you before. Well, what does that mean? Okay. So, uh, what does it, how, how do you take that in either sense? Well, if you take it in the way Schlegel would take it, it's really a, a downer of an example of humility because who this is this isn't some great lofty example of humility if Paul is saying oh have this same mind of Christ who did not try to become like God okay that's supposed to be some sort of great example which encourages us to be humble well that would be I loved uh, James White gave a great example of this he said uh, in his book Forgotten Trinity I've I've been reading that actually uh, over the last couple of weeks so when I was listening to this podcast I was reminded of this uh he said that would be like saying uh somebody who was hired the first day at, at an entry level position uh not trying to become the president of the company that day and we're supposed to say, oh, good job. You're, you're smart. You're such a great example of humility. No, that's, that's really kind of pathetic. Nobody would ever think that. Nobody would say, good job being humble because you, you would be foolish if you thought that you could raise the ranks that way. Similarly, it would be foolish, foolish, the utmost of foolishness if a creature thought he could attain the status of God. And so in verse six, it makes no sense whatsoever if this fits into the paradigm of humility. If Paul is saying, Oh, have the same mind of Christ, who is a created being who didn't try to climb the ladder and become God. Well, that is a ridiculous example that Paul could use. Why didn't he just use himself as an example or any other human being or any other animal? Because none of them can climb the ranks to become God. And so it's really kind of a ridiculous notion to think that uh, Jesus as a created being is somehow being exalted because he is not 
reaching up, trying to become God. Much more would it make sense if this is a premier example of Christ who had the equality with God in his glory before the world was created, and then in the incarnation comes and makes himself in the form of humanity. And obviously, that's a issue that we'll, we'll talk about in just a little bit, but there's there's the expectation that he's attaining humanity, which he did not formerly have. And we'll talk about that in a second. So anyway, I'm going to skip forward just a little bit and try to find where he's uh, going into this now. From you, and then verse 10, I'll skip down. Humble your... How does this relate to, especially like the NIV translation that says he was in very nature God? How do you think about that line there? That translation is an interpretation. So you have to look at the Greek and to see what it says. And I don't think you're going to find another translation that says something like that, right? There. All right. I do have to make this note just because, I mean, it. again, I have a little more knowledge that uh, perhaps um, others don't. But it, it does kind of uh, bug me a little bit that he talks like that. This is the second time in the interview that he's he's mentioned something like that with the Greek. He doesn't read Greek at all. And so when he talks like he can read Greek, it uh, it kind of bugs me a little bit because um, he's setting himself up to be some sort of authority. And unfortunately, that's going to come across where his argument is just completely blown apart here in a second. But I, I do have to say, because I, I did talk to him about that in this passage, actually, um, I asked him uh, about how the participles function and things like that. And he did tell me that he doesn't read Greek. Um, so he relies on other commentators who make who make note. And I'm not saying that invalidates his argument. But the way he's speaking seems to claim some sort of authority that we need to rely on the Greek when he's relying on somebody else who reads Greek uh, and trying to make his interpretation. And even then, I think he's missing some major, major things. So I just have to I have to make that point here because this argument that he's about to make does not fit with Greek at all. They're, they're interpreting the Greek sentence and words the way they want. You're talking about verse 6, who though... He was in the form of God. Yeah, what do you think that means, the form of God? This passage starts out with a present active participle in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, my translation I'm looking at puts that in a past tense. It's not past tense in the Greek. It's a present active participle. So I really think it's talking about the glorified Jesus, the risen from the dead, glorified, exalted Jesus at his time that he's writing to the Philippians. Okay. Okay, so that is the most ridiculous understanding of this passage, and I'll tell you why. Because that that word is hooparko, which is used throughout Scripture as basically a synonym for a me in Hellenistic Greek. So a me is a to-be verb, it's a copulative verb, and Huparko is basically a synonym for that. So it's a stative verb, meaning that the tense doesn't matter as much. And a simple word search would look at, would, would reveal this because the word itself is used 60 times in the New Testament. Well, guess how many show up in the past tense, the aorist tense? Zero. Zero show up in the, in the aorist tense. And so I think it's, uh, what is it? 53 times in the present and seven times in the imperfect. So we're dealing with these 
uh, present conjugations, that is the way that this verb appears. And even if you just ran, I, I just, just for kicks, ran a simple search in Logos for this verb in this form, in its present active participle, masculine, nominative, singular form, just to see how it shows up. And there are 15 occurrences where this verb shows up as the participle, and it shows up a lot in narrative literature relating past events. Let me say that again. This verb in this form shows up relating past events. So it's not talking about a present situation where you have Jesus uh, being glorified at that very moment in the presence of God. That is... That is not how this verb works. There are a lot of examples of this uh, used in Luke and in Acts. Uh, for example, in Acts 2.30, uh, there's the, the verse reads, Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn an oath to him to seat one of his descendants, talking about David. Well, the phrase, he was a prophet, is that same word, same form, huparkon. And you can go down the line in Acts 3. You have a phrase, a man who was lame from birth was being carried there. It's relating a past event. Well, guess what? A man who was lame, that verb is huparkon. So you have this verb used all over the place in past narrative in a present tense. And this is a, this is a reminder of for Greek, uh, present uh, tense, aorist tense, it's a lot more flexible than English. And so just because something's in the present tense does not mean that it's not relating to a past event. See, that that's part of the things that you learn, like in first year Greek, when you go through it, you, you're translating a past tense narrative and all of a sudden you have a present tense show up and you raise your hand and you ask the teacher and say, hey, why is this present tense even though it's talking about a past event? And then the teacher tells you, well, Greek is in English and Greek can do that. So Greek will often use a present uh, tense verb in order to talk about a past event. And so it's no surprise. In fact, even in uh, Paul's other writings, you see examples where he uses this this verb uh, to, to talk about uh, who somebody was in the past. For example, Romans 4.19 in Paul, writing about Abraham, says since he was about a 100 years old. Well, he was a 100 years old. That verb is huparkon in, in that participial form. And so it's very clear, if you just ran a simple search, that this is not talking about something that's in a present condition, but it's something that sets up for the past. And that's because participles don't stand on their own. Participles are linked with main verbs. And so this participle is linked with, uh, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So in other words, this is uh, this is the template, or I guess you could say this is the condition under which that happens. So while he was in, while he was, uh, in the, while he was in the state of being in the form of God, he decided that equality with God is not something to be grasped onto. So that's, that's how you would understand verse six from a Greek perspective, just understanding how a participle works. This is a very simple state of, uh, state of, verb talking about uh, who Christ is and who he was before he gave up this equality with God temporarily. And so that's how we would read Greek. And so 
obviously it's, it's something that uh, you, you just hear this argument and you, you know, it, it, it will sound smart to somebody because he claims that, you know, this is a possible understanding from the Greek, but really it, it's, it's not, it doesn't make sense at all. And there's, there's some problems with that in trying to force a present understanding from that verb when it's consistently used, especially in this form, if you just uh, do some searching, how, how it lays out in the rest of the New Testament. Okay. Sorry. I went crazy on that one, but so you have some another description, like Paul says in another place in Colossians, he is the image of the invisible God. Now, if Paul was talking about, again, this idea of the God council sitting up there and deciding which one of them is going to become a man, he would never say something like he's in the form of God. Well, except that this is a unique word, and he kind of mentioned that, but then he kind of bypassed it, that this uh, morphe itself, if you look at how this word is used throughout, uh, I mean, it's, it's only used a, a few times in the New Testament, but it's basically... Uh, an inward reality manifest on the outside. So that's why you have like the NIV, for example, saying uh, the very nature of God, because the idea is that who you are on the inside is uh, manifest. So if huparko is used with this, it's saying that uh, who is in the state of God on the inside, which manifests itself on the outside. And so when... And then that would contrast later on, which where he takes, he's not in the state of, but he takes the form of a slave later on and being found in appearance as a man. By the way, I should mention at this point that uh, the the phrase in verse 7, in contrast, you have the contrast painted in verse 7, you have the verb ginomai used, which is not, it is in the state of family, but it often is related to becoming a certain way instead of existing a certain way. And so notice the difference there is he was stative in the state of being God. He was in the state in the form of God, but in contrast, he became man. And so I know what, um, what he would probably say is that that, that, uh, existed at his birth. Obviously he became man and that's, uh, that's true in one sense, but ultimately the contrast is all the more real when it's contrasted with the to be verb of, of the huparko in verse six. All right. So we want to go on more of this. He talks a little bit about, uh, that, but I want to go to the last part in verse, verse, uh, nine and 11. Uh, they talk starting in ver, or at, uh, about 16 minutes in about the contrast with Isaiah 45 here. And I think it's, it's helpful just to note this uh, as well. So starting uh, about 1610. Well, Paul's not shy about that. He, he uses Adam Christ comparisons. Romans in- five, first Corinthians. Okay. So what they just were talking about was that there may be an allusion here uh, to Adam, uh, basically Christ being like Adam. Uh, the problem is of course, that there's no terminology that is the same uh, it's a different word for image of God. Uh, it's morphe instead of acon, et cetera. So you have, and they even say it, say, we can't be too dogmatic on this. It's possible, but we're not sure. And so I acknowledge that. Uh, I just think that it's unlikely whatsoever because there's no terminology there, but they would like there to be a connection with Adam. So that could be the main, uh, um, 
meaning. But now they're going to talk about That's Isaiah 45. And those other places. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last point just to mention here is uh, that in verse, verse 9, we see this incredible exaltation that Jesus is given the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If Paul stopped right there, this text would really be easily used by some folks to say that Jesus is worshipped as God here. But it seems like Paul is not leaving that option open when he adds the rest of it, and he says, to the glory of God the Father. So God's Mm -hmm. exalting Jesus to the highest place in the universe, next to himself, but it's for his own glory. It's all right. Uh, well, let's talk a little bit about that first, and then we'll let them fin- finish their point, because the assumption is the highest point in the universe next to himself. Well, that's already a presuppositional argument, because what's going on in verses 9 through 11 is 100% there is a quote of Isaiah 45. And if you look at Isaiah 45, 20, uh, 23... Uh, what it says is, by myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed uh, all who are incensed against him. In the Lord shall all the offspring of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. So notice that this is a clear reference to Yahweh. Yahweh is speaking and he says to me, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to swear allegiance. Well, when you go back to this verse in, uh, or in Philippians 2 and you read what this is going on, he has exalted his name above every name. Well, that has tremendous implications to what we just read. And then in verse 10, it says it emphatically that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow uh, on heaven and on earth and under the earth. And when you read that, and then verse 11 completes the thought, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, that is an emphatic declaration. And in fact, uh, I don't, it, did you notice what he said there is he said he exalted Jesus alongside himself. Well, that's an interpretation because what Paul's doing is 100% quoting Isaiah 45 and he's in, he's switching out the personal pronoun of God, Yahweh speaking, that every knee is going to bow to me and putting Jesus there. Now, just from a, oh, let's just talk about it from a logical standpoint. Can a creature attain to the same glory as God? Is it acceptable well, now let's, let's go ahead and be honest. Uh, in certain theologies, like Mormon theology, there is kind of an expectation that, uh, humanity does attain to deity, right? Well, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Unitarianism right now. And to them, they want to keep a distinction between God and Jesus. And there is a problem if Jesus is receiving the worship and adulation that is due God. That is a problem because throughout the Old Testament. In fact, even in Isaiah, in the near context there, you, you have God saying emphatically, I will not give my glory to another. And so that is very problematic to kind of poo-poo that and just put it to the side saying, oh yeah, well, he's, he's quoting that. And it would be an argument for the Trinity, except for this little phrase on the end, to the glory of God the Father. And so we, 
I think it's important to understand exactly what's going on and that the problems, if you don't take this, if you don't take Jesus as divinity, you have a creature receiving the worship that God is due when he specifically said he's not going to give his glory to somebody else. All right, so we continue on. It's not so that he would take a position above the Father, but a position that is highly exalted, but it's... it's and nobody, by the way, would say that Jesus is taking a position above the Father. I don't know if that's a misunderstanding of what he thinks Trinitarian theology says, because we would say Jesus and the Father, the Son and the Father are equal, obviously. All for the Father's glory. So I, I don't yep. know, I think that really does help to, to clarify the whole thing. Verses 9 to 10 do not fit the Trinitarian interpretation of this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Jesus Christ is exalted by God, Jesus Christ has a God, like Paul tells us many places. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus the Messiah. Many places Paul tells us that Jesus has a God. And here, again, God has highly exalted Jesus. So Jesus is not God. He's exalted by God. He res- All right, so I don't know, and this may be the fact that, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think uh, they really understand the Trinity and... That kind of comes across by what they're saying because they act as if God and Jesus cannot uh, be separately attributed. Uh, we believe in uh, three persons, three distinct persons, um, and one God. And so what that would mean, how else would you refer to both God and Jesus in one passage if they are, if they are both divinity? It's, it's kind of mind blowing. Uh, and I think what's, what seems to be going on, I mean, I can't have any other way of understanding it is that they are, what they are doing is they're saying, this is what the Trinity would have to, would have to be like if there was the Trinity. And since it's not that way, it can't be the Trinity. But in reality, uh, it's, it's really kind of misunderstanding the, what we would call the ontological trinity and the functional trinity or ontological and economic trinity, where we have the status, uh, of the trinity. All three persons in the Godhead are equal. You have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equal as deity. But then functionality, the Son is submissive to the Father and the Spirit is submissive to either, uh, depending on how you take that, either both or from the Father specifically. And you have a, not, not necessarily a hierarchy of value, but you have a hierarchy of function. And that is the biblical understanding of the Trinity. And I don't think that they understand that. Uh, they, they're kind of bypassing that saying that you would have to refer to, uh, the Father and the Son, uh, completely the same way. And obviously that's just a misunderstanding of the Trinity. And it's forcing your preconceived notion of how the Trinity would have to be talked about on the passage. But I think it's actually, uh, Trinitarian in the sense that there is the reference to the Father in this passage. Why would you have to bring in the mention of Father, uh, if you, just want to mention God. Uh, but the fact that the Son is there also naturally corresponds with the Father. All right, one more argument that I think uh, we can mention and then uh, we'll Jesus wrap it up. his name. God bestowed the name upon Jesus. So Jesus received it from God. That Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. I know for many American English speakers, when you say Lord, it, it gets confusing. You think that means God. 
But we know better than that. We're deep down, and we know we have, we have ten lords of leaping in our Christmas song. We know that Lord doesn't have to mean God. It means a title of authority, and here it's the Lord Messiah, and he's above every other human being. All right, so I have to I have to comment on that because uh, it's true that kurios does not have to mean God, but there are some passages where very clearly it is a stand-in for Yahweh. And here, remember the context here is Isaiah 45. Well, who is in view there? Yahweh is specifically named, and then he claims that authority through his name, that they will bow to me. And then you have the further reference in verses 24 and 25, that only in the Lord, that is Yahweh, it shall be said of me, etc. So then you have in Philippians 2, you have that passage quoted at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Well, that phrase kurios in the Greek, standing in for Lord, is the Septuagint translation for Yahweh. And so, and there are a lot of New Testament passages where this actually comes up. And it's where you need to understand the uh, Septuagint background of the Old Testament because most often in the New Testament, you will have a New Testament writer or speaker allude to the Septuagint because being a Greek-speaking culture, that is a very common thing to do. They would they were very familiar with the Septuagint. So by saying that Jesus Christ is Lord, it's not just saying, oh yeah, he has authority. No, kurios is a direct uh, play on what was just mentioned in Isaiah 45, because that's the whole quotation. That's what's being included here. You can't remove that context and just say, oh yeah, and he's just using the authoritative sense of kurios. Well, a kurios does have an authoritative sense, but contextually, that's not what's going on here. The whole context of Isaiah 45 has to be in play because that's what this is a part of, that quote. And so there, kurios is a translation of Yahweh. And so that can't be minimized. And you can't just say, oh yeah, you know, you need to remember that kurios doesn't mean God. That's too simplistic of an understanding. And for the Greek speaker, for the one who would be reading the Septuagint and reading Paul's letter, he would understand that correlation. And so I think that that's uh, important. Well, they have a couple more uh, minutes as they wrap up and move on to Colossians, and they have a couple more passages that they address in this episode, but I think we'll cut it off there because we've uh, had enough time on this. And I, I, I do hope it's helpful because it's one of those things where hearing other arguments is often helpful to see how people would talk about things. It's also good practice to think through your mind how you would respond to somebody who would bring up these arguments. So I hope that's helpful as well. And if you have any other ideas or any feedback on any of the episodes, I'm always open to hearing from you. Peter at petergaming.com is my email. And if you want more information on the seminary, you can go to shepherds.edu. And if you want more information, some articles I've written, etc. about me, you can go to petergaming.com. In the meantime... We'll see you next time, Lord willing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face shine upon you.